uh, my story, as I tell it in my new uh, memoir, Sunday Will Never Be the Same, uh, is really a, a story of, of God um, taking me from, from, one, from one place, in my, in my case, it's from, it, it, it's from uh, a place that, that was far away from the Catholic Church, uh, and taking me through different ways that I thought I could find happiness and bringing me quite unexpectedly to myself into the church as the place where he intended and still intends to, uh, to make me happy. Um, and and uh, I, oh, I just want to know, can you hear me all the way in the back? Yes? Okay, good, good. Um, so. Uh, just to give you an example of uh, the way in which uh, the Lord has brought me to a place where I never would have expected. Uh, this is jumping ahead a bit in my story, but, um, but this has to do with, with a, a Catholic saint whom I, I, I'm sure some of you are probably uh, familiar with and appreciate. Uh, and this has to do with the first time I ever heard of this particular Catholic saint. Um, so, I was uh, in my mid-30s, and I had gone from being Jewish to being agnostic, and then finally uh, experiencing the grace of conversion to Christianity, accepting Jesus, uh, but I was not yet um, intending to be a Catholic. In fact, I was intending as a Christian to be ABC, anything but Catholic. <laughs> Um, I, but um, I did have a great love uh, for uh, the writings of G.K. Chesterton. Anyone here familiar with, with Chesterton? Oh, good, several hands, yes. Um, well, I, uh, I uh, th then you'll, you'll appreciate this, that I, as a Protestant, decided to go on a G.K. Chesterton <coughs> pilgrimage to places where Chesterton lived and worked in England. This was in 2004. Um, and I didn't realize that w on the pilgrimage, I would be the only Protestant on a bus full of Catholics. <laughs> and, and that all my fellow you know, pilgrims would find it so amazing that there was a non-Catholic on the bus that I would that, that it was like having, you know, a big bullseye on my back where everyone just wanted to, to convert me. And, uh, and so I remember the first full day on the pilgrimage, this, you know, sweet little church lady took me aside and she said to me, you're Jewish. And I said, oh, well, uh, yes, um, that's right. I was born Jewish. Um, and you know, I do believe that I do believe that I still am Jewish, that I'm fulfilled in my Judaism. But still, you know, I was trying very much to assimilate. So it's strange to to you know be on this Christian pilgrimage and hear you're Jewish. So the woman said, "You're Jewish. Have you heard of Edith Stein?" And I, as a matter of fact, I had not heard of Edith Stein. This was my first time hearing about her. So uh, the, the lady told me Edith Stein's story, that she was, uh, that she was, uh, a, uh, she was originally from Germany and was uh, a great uh, doctor of philosophy uh, pre-World War II and taught at university. Uh, and then when the Germans, uh, when the Nazis took power, uh, she was prevented from teaching anymore, so she entered a Carmelite co convent, uh, was uh, then uh, sent to a convent in the Netherlands to keep her safe. Um, I forgot to, if I even said she was prevented from teaching because of the Nazi laws, because, because Jews were people of, who were non-Aryan were prevented from teaching, uh, including converts, uh, to, to converts from Judaism. So then she was sent to, as a Carmelite sister to the Netherlands so that she could be safe from deportation. But as it turned out, she wasn't safe even there, ultimately deported from, from, 
from uh, her convent in the Netherlands to Auschwitz and was canonized by John Paul II as a martyr for the faith. So I heard this story and I thought, oh, that's, that's you know, in, interesting um, and you know, sounds like a lovely uh, person. Um, and then the next day, um, some, one of my fellow pilgrims took me aside and said, you're Jewish. Have you heard of Edith Stein? <laughs> And this went on, you know, just day after day until pretty much everyone on the bus had, had tried this with me. And, I, you know, it, it, I think by the third or fourth day, I determined that I never wanted to hear about Edith Stein again for the rest of my life. Um, and, uh, you know, the way I felt, and some of you who are perhaps a little older will appreciate this, was I felt like the way that a black person might feel if he or she walked into a synagogue and was taken aside by the rabbi who says, who's, who says, you're black. Have you heard of Sammy Davis Jr.? <laughs> um, so, so, I, um, so just to give you an idea of how God has taken me from one place and into another place that I couldn't have imagined, that was that was end of July, beginning of August, 2004, so exactly 15 years ago. So what am I doing this coming August 3rd, a Saturday morning? This coming August 3rd, I am delivering the annual Edith Stein Guild address <laughs> at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan on what Edith Stein taught me about the mystery of spiritual motherhood. <laughs> so, you know, God certainly has a, a sense of humor and he has his own way of, of, of blessing me through his providence and the events of my, of, of my life, where even events that might have been annoying or embarrassing at the time, or moreover, events that you know, in other circumstances were painful at the time. Uh, in, in Sunday Will Never Be the Same, I tell about how, how God used all these different uh, events uh, ultimately uh, in my life to, to bring me closer uh, to him. So uh, what, I, what I want to do uh, just, you know, with the next um, half hour or so is to first tell you uh, the reasons why I decided to write my memoir, uh, and then um, tell you some of the touchstones, some of the main, um, th main themes, main things that happened uh, in, my, in my memoir. Uh, and then after that, uh, I'll be very happy to answer your questions and, and also to, to sign your, your books if you'd like. So first, uh, some of the reasons why I wrote Sunday will never be the same. Uh, well, uh, you may notice some of you who, who know 60s pop that the very title Sunday will never be the same uh, is from a pop song by Spanky and Our Gang from, from the late 60s. And um, I was born in the late 60s. I was too young to to remember that, but as uh, a teenager in the late 1980s and then uh, through the 90s, I became a rock and roll historian. Uh, I loved 60s pop uh, and I interviewed a number of well-known uh, musicians, songwriters from that era because I was so eager to tell their stories. So I interviewed people like Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, Del Shannon, Harry Nilsson, um, Gene Pitt, Gene Pitney, and uh, so the, the, one of the first reasons why I wanted to write my story was in the hope that I might help people from my own life, from my old life, from my previous life in the music business, uh, become more open to Catholic faith. Um, question uh, for you. How many people here, if I could just see some hands, how many of you are not on Facebook? Okay, a few hands. Good. Well, 
I admire you very much because you have more important things to do with your time, which is great. Um, some of us, we just kind of get sucked in because, because, you know, Cousin Mary won't send everyone pictures of the baby. You have to go to Facebook to see the new baby pictures and, and so on. And this is how one gets hooked and then one starts to feel like one has to respond to and like every post and so on. Well, one of the things that happens when you get onto Facebook is that uh, people from your past discover you. Uh, so, uh, so on Facebook, I've been friended by people from my high school, people from my college, and a number of people who knew me uh, when I was in, in the music business. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, when you're a public, I don't mean to say a public Catholic, but when one is public about one's Catholic faith, um, people who are either fallen away Catholics or are non-Catholics non um, may just see a post on Facebook like about me writing about, about my, something that I believe in that I think is perfectly you know, innocuous, like you know, see what this crisis pregnancy center is doing to help women save their babies or something like that. And then someone who's coming from a non-Catholic worldview may see that post and leave a comment and and be and be like, yeah, 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 you know, <laughs> because um, some people uh, get uh, inflamed. You know, they go they go they go from from you know zero to you know 120 you know very quickly um, when they're um, confronted with the Catholic position, the Catholic understanding of the dignity of human life and with Catholic under, understandings about other, uh, uh, other issues, um, such as the death penalty, immigration. Some people take these as simply political stands or political issues, not understanding how for us as Catholics, there's a whole worldview that's integrated that for us, these are not merely issues of politics, but issues about every life mattering, every life having val value. And so with these Facebook friends from my past, I felt that I um, couldn't simply, you know, message them and say, let me tell you about my Catholic faith and about why I believe every life has value. But if I wrote a book, with a title from a rock song, and if I titled every chapter um, after a rock song, you know, from the 60s with titles, which are actually descriptive of points of my, in my life, but titles like God Only Knows, I'm a Believer, Homeward Bound, Along Comes Mary, uh, that perhaps some rock and roll uh, lover might might see this and be curious enough just for my stories about my, about my past uh, that uh, they might read this and at least see that it's plausible that someone from their world could become Catholic, even if it doesn't convert them, even just to soften them a bit. And you know, the funny thing is that with regard to the reviews, this got a rave review in the second disc, which is a record collector's website, um, and and uh, you know on on Amazon and Goodreads, it has mostly very favorable reviews. But you know, for every you know ten reviews by people who say they love it, there is one review by someone who who says, you know. I read Catholic books, and I'm 100 pages into this book, and it's just about rock and roll. <laughs> well, there's a reason for it, and believe me, it does get super duper Edith Stein Catholic. Um, but <laughs> but that, so that's one reason why I wrote this, to reach people from, from my past. Uh, and uh, a second reason I wrote it was, and this actually relates to number 27 in the catechism, which I love, and I'm going to remember that, Father, because my lucky numbers are my birthday, September 3rd, 27, nine times three. So thank you, that's, that's, that's great. Um, so, so this second reason has to do with that 
I wanted to show people that when we become Catholic, it doesn't mean that we have to deny everything we ever loved. It doesn't mean that, oh, I used to listen to this rock band that's not a Catholic rock band, and so now I have to only listen to Christian rock, or now I have to only, only, um, only watch EWTN and, and so on. Um, I mean, you know, I personally would have good reasons to advise against watching Game of, Thro Game of Thrones. You know, we, we can use discernment, certainly, with respect to our media c consumption. But I really wanted to show people that, um, that God can use things that, that uh, are not Christian to draw us closer to the good, the true, and the beautiful. In my case, God did use rock and roll that wasn't explicitly Christian uh, because um, that was what God was able to use to make me, uh, through these sort of ecstatic experiences of listening to music, going to concerts, to long for something that was bigger than myself and to long for something that would be like a concert where I'd be with this group of people and we're all watching the same thing and we're all being taken out of ourselves and taken somewhere higher uh, that's bigger than us through this, through, through this uh, one thing. Um, you know, certainly during the days when I was going to concerts, uh, if you had told me, well, what you really want is to be at Mass and to receive the Eucharist and to be one with people in the mystical body, I would not have understood that. I would not have appreciated that. But I can see now, uh, I can see now um, that God was preparing me by giving me that longing for transcendence. Um, and I will tell you, actually, with respect to, to rock and roll and that God was using secular rock and roll to draw me to him, that's not quite true. There was one song that I liked quite a bit, which I was convinced was a secular song. Uh, it's a 60s pop hit uh, that was uh, a one-hit wonder for a group from Ohio called The Music Explosion called uh, Little Bit of Soul. Um, you know, you'd recognize it if you heard it. Dun, 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 You need a little bit of soul to put you right. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, um, there was a time that I uh, write about in Sunday Will Never Be the Same where I was going to England and I was going to meet this songwriter, John Carter, who wrote Little Bit of Soul. He also wrote some songs that you might know, like, like um, the best known one would be Can't You Hear My... Heartbeat by Herman's Hermits. He also wrote a song that those of you who live near the, uh, near the water probably know because they play it every summer. Beach baby, beach baby, beach baby, give me your hand. Anyway, so when I was planning to go to England to meet John Carter, and this was long before I thought of being, uh, being Christian, I had this friend who was a rock fan who, who said to me, Oh, well, when you ask him about little, little Bit of Soul, uh, you can ask him about how um, that's a Christian song. And I said to him, Scott, the song is about soul music and dancing. It's not a Christian song. And he said, no, it has that line you've got to make like you're on your knees and pray, and then a little bit of soul will come your way. And, and I said to him, Scott, it's about some kind of a dance, you know, People used to do these cool dances where they'd, where they'd like be on their knees and then up, stand up. And anyway, so I met John Carter in England and I said to him, just because I figured I had to go back and tell my friend Scott that he was wrong. So I said, and I knew that John Carter wasn't, wasn't an active Christian. And so I said to him, oh, John, you know, you're, you're not going to believe this, but my friend Scott back home thinks that Little Bit of Soul is a Christian song. Um, so he said, oh, yes, it is. And he was like totally, like, just <laughs> not ironic. I was like, what? But, but you're, not, you're, you're not Christian. He said, no, 
Uh, I wrote the music to that, and my songwriting partner, Ken Lewis, wrote the lyrics, and he was very fervently Christian, and he wanted to do an experiment to see if he could write a song with Christian lyrics and get it into the pop charts without people knowing it was a Christian song. So I'm like, oh my gosh. And of course, now, now that I know my gospel a little better, it all makes sense. When you're feeling low and the fish won't bite, you need a little bit of soul to put you right, and so, and so on. It's about... It's, 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 about, it's about, you know, the Gospels with Jesus telling Peter, cast your, cast your net to that side, and Peter saying, you know, Lord, we've been fishing all night and have had nothing, but at your word I will put, it, I will put down the net. Uh, so that's just one sort of exception to my not being into Christian music, at least not con consciously. And so... Uh, another reason why I wrote Sunday Will Never Be the Same uh, is that I uh, wanted, this is a, a more serious reason, I wanted people to know, something I mentioned a, a few moments ago, that God can use all the events of our lives, including even those that are most painful, to, to, draw, uh, to draw us to him. So... This provides a nice um, segue into actually um, into, into talking about the different touchstones from my book that I mentioned. Um, I'm uh, going to give you a few touchstones of different plot points in the book, and then um, and then in about uh, 15 minutes or so, uh, when I'm done with the touchstones, then we can break for Q and A. And if there's something you want to hear more about or something that I haven't mentioned that you want me to talk about, then we can continue the conversation that way. Uh, I'm choosing to give you touchstones rather than telling uh, the entire story because this book, which is um, 255 pages long, goes from when I was five years old to, uh, to when I was 40 years old. And... Uh, if I gave you the entire story tonight, it would be, um, I think the best comparison would be like Easter Vigil, <laughs> but without even the fun of the bonfire, unless we could, you know, maybe get, 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 you know, get, get Jean to, you know, set something, do, do some like, do some like, you know, Japanese chef stuff in the kitchen. But, you know, other than that, you know, uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's much better if I just give you the, the basic touchstones and then you, you ask me to fill in uh, some of the gaps. So, as I just mentioned, I wanted to show people that God can use even the painful events of our lives to draw us closer to him. So the first touchstone of, of, my, of my life, well, actually the first one is not a painful one. The first, the first one is my foundational experience of God. And, and that happened uh, when I was five. Uh, and I was living in a place similar to this one in terms of, um, in terms of the physical layout. I, I imagine some of you probably live close enough to Puget Sound that you can see it from your yard, right? Anyone? Yeah, yes, um, so fa father, father does. Uh, so when I was a child, I lived in Galveston, Texas, and we had a house right on Galveston Bay. And I had a foundational experience of God at, at five, and it was a, a time that, that was uh, a tense time in my family. My parents were arguing a lot. Um, they were about to separate. And uh, I remember being in the playing in the backyard and looking out onto the bay. And I had been reading the Peanuts comic strip. And in Peanuts, uh, the characters would ask each other these heavy questions, like, what is the meaning of life? And uh, so I was looking out onto the water, just thinking, what is the meaning of life? And then the answer just hit me that the meaning of life is love and that if everybody loved one another, there would be no war, no fighting, the entire world would be transformed. This was the answer to, to every 
problem was love. And I had this sense of intense joy and you know, what I would now call consolation. Um, and I thought um, it, it was like this you know, numinous, supernatural feeling of the presence of God. And I thought, I have to run back into the house and tell mommy and daddy that the answer to everything is love. But you know, the funny thing is, even when you're five years old, you, you can already start to get cynical. So, you know, so as soon as I started to reflect upon that, I thought, no, I'm not going to run inside and tell mom and dad. They'll, they'll think it's stupid. You know, it's such a simple answer that somebody must have thought about it at some point. Somebody must have thought that the answer to everything was love. It, you know, it must have been tried, and and it must not have worked. So, so I'm not going to say anything. But um, you know, upon reflection, I realize now, you know, after all the events of my life, that even though there were many times in my life when I was far away from God, that somehow underneath everything I, I, was that foundational experience, so that I could never completely deny God, because uh, because you know somehow even just subconsciously, I always had that memory of his presence. So this second touchstone of, of my story gets to the part about God using the pain. So uh, the second touchstone would be that, that I had early experiences of being mistreated and feeling misplaced guilt and misplaced shame. So. Um, I uh, suffered sexual abuse as a child, also suffered uh, physical uh, abuse uh, at home and verbal abuse. Um, now, th th this, was, uh, this was after, after my parents' d divorce. Um, and uh, the, the, sex the sexual abuse um, was, was uh, by um, different uh, male, per male perpetrators, um, some of the... Um, some of the other types of abuse uh, were, uh, were um, from my mother. And uh, I will tell you now that um, I have forgiven my, my mother. Um, she doesn't remember everything the same way that I do, but the things that she does remember, she deeply uh, re regrets. Uh, she's supportive of my apostolate now. And I, even though it's painful for her to to hear me, you know, speak about these 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 times, and you know, I can't blame her for that. But she but she supports me. Um, but um, but I mention this though because because at the time it's important for me to acknowledge first that the abuse happened, and second to acknowledge that at the time the way I responded as a child was to blame myself. So that's what I mean about the experience of misplaced guilt, misplaced shame. Terribly misplaced because no child is ever responsible for being abused. Um, and this is true regardless of whether the uh, abuse comes from uh, a parent, a family friend, a stranger, a peer. This is regardless of whether the abuse is in a situation of of uh, so-called play, it doesn't matter. No child is ever responsible for, uh, for it because children are not of an age where they can uh, consent to, uh, to actions uh, in a mature way. And that's particularly true with regard to sexual abuse. Moreover, even abuse that occurs within the context of so-called play uh, is still is still um, something that the child uh, receives as a, a trauma because children's bodies simply aren't prepared uh, for the uh, hormonal responses uh, to, uh, to being uh, touched in any way sexually. Uh, so uh, no one is ever respon it's responsible for that, uh, but uh, it's natural for children to internalize uh, their their um, feelings of guilt and to carry these uh, feelings of, of guilt into, uh, into adulthood. Um, and the beginning of healing 
is to acknowledge honestly to ourselves, first, that these things happened, and second, that, uh, that we weren't responsible for them, and that uh, healing is possible through the grace of God. This is not denying also that for those of us who've suffered abuse that we can also benefit from a good and clinically qualified therapist, but to say that any true healing has to always uh, come through our acknowledging that we totally depend on God. And in my story, and this is something I talk about more in my books on healing from abuse, my piece I give you, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints, and Remembering God's Mercy, which is more generally on healing from any kind of trauma. In my story, I've found that as painful as these events were at the time, and you know, nothing can ever make an evil event, an evil act good, yet God has worked such good through them because God has used them to enable me to realize my need for him in a way that I might not otherwise. I have cousins my age uh, who, like me, grew up in a Jewish household, and, uh, and these cousins are dynamic, well-rounded uh, women, and, and, they, uh, and they seem you know, and they seem reasonably happy. Um, so, you know, I know that if I had not suffered abuse, and I, I assume that these cousins didn't suffer things like what I suffered, I don't know that for a fact, but, um, but I can look at my cousins and, and know that, um, that, you know, God, I can basically see what I might be like if I hadn't suffered abuse, but, you know, seeing their happiness, I wouldn't want to be them. I, I would not want to be my cousins as much as I love them and as much as I admire them in many ways. I wouldn't want to be them because for all their natural goodness and all the good things that they do and for their natural happiness and their, and their Jewish faith, which is something that's good and substantial, they don't have Jesus. They don't have the Eucharist. They don't have the communion of saints. And I just know from my own experience as a Catholic that my worst day as a Catholic is better than my very best day uh, before. I, I can go back to you know, my experience going to a concert or interviewing some rock musician I admired and being so happy and just thinking, wow, it doesn't get better than this. But always in the back of it, there'd be, and then one day, you know, perhaps very soon, I'm going to get depressed again. I'm going to feel that emptiness again. I'm going to feel that black hole again, and there's no net. I knew that, I, I knew that however happy I might feel prior to having faith, I had, I was without a net, and my emotions could dip uh, at, 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 any, at any time, and I wouldn't know how to get back from that. Now, on my very worst uh, day, I can, I can say to myself, okay, I don't feel like praying right now, you know what, if I don't pray right now, the enemy wins. Um, this is exactly what the enemy wants for me not to pray. This is exactly what the enemy wants for me to be resentful. And you know, when I think like that, then even if I don't feel like praying, even if it's uncomfortable to pray, I can do it and I can, by the grace of God and the help of my friends and, and, and um, and the prayers of the communion of saints, which I know are with me even when I'm alone and don't have regular you know, access to, to friends or sympathetic family, I know that, that the, the prayers of the, of, of the church and that God's grace and the graces of my baptism are supporting me and are going to carry me through. 
And I think that's important also for us to know as a church, I think as a church, um, we've been going through some times, uh, some times of, of, of trial. Um, this was the year when I first uh, encountered um, experiences of um, people I knew in the church, including priests I knew in the church, not acting in a Catholic way. Um, January 6th, in the morning, I went to an epiphany uh, party to see uh, my old, I wouldn't exactly call him a friend friend, but certainly a priest, spiritual father um, friend, um, Father C. John McCloskey of Opus Dei. I hadn't seen him uh, in uh, about um, close to 10, to 10 years, and I went to, uh, to visit him that morning, and that evening, I looked at the Washington Post, and there was a story from Michelle Borstein about how Opus Dei had paid an accuser of Father C. John McCloskey a million dollars not to talk about how he molested her. Um, and, you know, I couldn't believe it. Just that morning, I had seen this, I had visited this priest, and just that evening, and, and I'd, after visiting the priest, I had talked to my friend who went with me to say, oh, he's so good, oh, he's so holy, and, and all this, and then boom. So, um, so I understand that, um, that there are times when we think that uh, the places where we are looking for light and goodness bec become dark uh, for, uh, for us. But even then, Christ is loving his church. Uh, the church is on this side of, of heaven. The church is being purified and purification by its nature is, is or can be, can be painful. Uh, but every act of goodness and every act of love on this side will every act of goodness and love on this side connects us to the other side, connects us to the life of heaven. Um, did any of you see that um, Mr. Rogers film, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Yes, I see one, a couple of hands. Beautiful film, I recommend it to, to, to ev everyone, um, even if you, you were never a fan of Mr. Rogers. Um, it, it's uh, a great example of secular art that's uh, ultimately, ultimately has a deeply Christian message. Um, it has a clip of Mr. Rogers with a, um, with a public service announcement that he made uh, after 9-11, where he says that when he was a child and he would get scared, uh, and you can imagine, you know, he probably as a child was a kid during World War II when they would have the blackouts because because they'd have to prepare in case there were air raids. He said when he was a child and got scared, uh, his mother would say to him that um, in any kind of crisis, look for the ones who are helping. So likewise, in the church, we can and should look for the ones who are helping. And if there's anyone here tonight who has suffered wounds of, of a, of abuse, I, I want to let you know there are cards and flyers up at the book table from the Maria Goretti Network, uh, which is one of the organizations that's helping, that does healing outreach to victims, victims supporting victims so that they help each other, like people do in Alcoholics Anonymous, to help each other to find, to find light and to find forgiveness and to be lifted up out, out of their pain. Uh, so um, I, I've been t speaking longer than I wanted to, and I still have like four touchstones to go. So I'm going to try to get through those four touchstones in about five minutes to allow plenty of time for Q&A. Can you hang, out, can you, uh, hang on for, for another five minutes? Okay, wonderful. Thank you. Well, some of these touchstones I can go through a little more quickly because I've told you a bit more about my, my life. Um, so, the t the, so the third touchstone after the experience of being mistre mistreated is, um, is um, trying to 
um, trying to find happiness in different ways. And I've already told you about trying to find happiness through music. Music was the healthy way that I tried to find happiness. Um, thank God I wasn't um, into drink or drugs, but I did have, um, have other um, less healthy or unhealthy ways of trying to find happiness, trying to get out of myself to, because I was really running away from my wounds. And, um, and when we're acting out of our wounds, instead of acting out of our wellness, that's when we can, um, that's when we can um, dig ourselves deeper holes. So I talk about that period of my life uh, in Sunday Will Never Be the Same. Uh, and then the next touchstone is, is finding myself um, uh, pursuing truth, seeking truth. Um, because uh, there, there was a point when I was uh, suffering from cyclical suicidal depression, which I now know is undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and I started to just really hunger for the good, the true, the beautiful. And my uh, search was jump-started by the discovery of this wonderful author. Um, I was interviewing a rock musician in December 1995 when I was 27, which makes me now 50. And I, um, and I asked this rock musician uh, what he was reading these days. And he answered that he was reading this book I had never heard of by this author I had never heard of. And after the interview, I just went and picked up this book, thinking that I would be able to read it and then impress this rock musician the next time he came to town. Uh, the book was The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and uh, in reading it, I received this vision of Christianity that was so different from any idea that I'd had of Christianity before. Uh, as a Jewish child growing up in Texas, which is real Bible Belt, I had this idea that, that um, Christianity was about white bread, moral majority conformity, just bland conformity, and that the only way that I could have my own identity, which I desperately wanted to have, was to be uh, against whatever Christians were for. Um, I didn't object to the Jesus of the Gospels, uh, but I didn't see the Jesus of the Gospels in my uh, experience of Christianity as an out outsider. Um, so, um, so I, um, that, was, that was what I thought Christianity was, but then when I read Chesterton, Chesterton had a much different impression of Christianity that um, challenged me, because for uh, Chesterton, Christianity was uh, a means of finding sanity in an insane world. I desperately wanted sanity. I wanted peace and calm. And uh, for Chesterton, uh, the, the world was, was uh, without peace. And Christianity was in rebellion against this world that wants to steal our, our peace. Um, I read, uh, I got very curious and wanted to read more Chesterton, even though I wasn't sure if I agreed with him. He certainly challenged me. And I remember uh, in Orthodoxy, uh, read, uh, Chesterton's book Orthodoxy, reading him saying that uh, a dead thing can go with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. Um, meaning that, um, that it's, um, if we go with the spirit of the world, we are dead. If we want to be alive, we must go against the stream of the world that wants to pull us down. This really appealed to me as someone who, who loved rock and roll, loved rebellion. I found it a little hard to believe that there really were Christians like Chesterton in the world, but again, it got me curious. And then the, the next touchstone is finding Jesus, um, which, which uh, I can talk a bit about more in the Q&A, um, but uh, the, the next touchstone is finding Jesus and then 
um, being frustrated discovering that Jesus wasn't enough. Now, you might wonder, how can Jesus not be enough? Isn't Jesus everything? Isn't he our, you know, isn't he God, our, our ultimate fulfillment? Well, under what circumstances can Jesus not be enough? Well, the circumstances under which uh, Jesus cannot be enough is when we look at him the way that I did as a Protestant. I was not belonging to any particular Protestant church. I simply got baptized and was church shopping. And it was just about me and Jesus, Jesus and me. Uh, and when I tried to find a church, I tried to find a church that had the music I liked and the liturgy I liked and the people that I most naturally would be friends with and gravitate to who didn't challenge me, didn't require me to be particularly charitable. <laughs> that was just, you know, my idea of how I wanted my faith. It, it was my cafeteria and I was going to take my favorite dish. Um, and so, you know, Jesus somehow wasn't enough and I didn't know how, how um, I could get satisfaction as, um, as, as Mick Jagger sang. Um, so the final touchstone is discovering fulfillment and, and purpose and a, a place to, to rest and remain and my, my home in the Catholic Church, in the heart of the church with the Eucharist and the communion of saints. And it was actually the communion of saints and specifically one saint, Saint Maximilian Kolbe, who drew me uh, into, the, into the church. Um, I'd love to tell you about that during the Q&A if you would like to ask me about that. But, um, but just to wrap up the, the lecture uh, portion, um, through understanding the communion of saints and the mystical body and what that meant with respect to the Eucharist, it changed my whole idea of church because I now understand that as much as I still have my own taste with regard to, with regard to liturgy and, and reverence and so on, even so, a mediocre liturgy with mediocre songs and mediocre preaching, um, or even, dare I say, a bad liturgy that is at least valid <laughs> and licit, um, is, is more fulfilling and more satisfying for me on an exponential level, you know, in the Catholic Church than the best, most high liturgy that I ever experienced in a Protestant church. And the difference is that when I go to the mediocre or even badly done liturgy in a Catholic church and, you know, I, and, you know, as I'm, you know, interiorly judging and thinking, you know, I don't like that song. I don't like that song. Oh, the, 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 the oh, the priest, you know, left out a word or he ad-libbed or blah, 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 blah. Um, not looking at you, Father, honestly. <laughs> uh, um, even on a day like that, when I receive Jesus in the Eucharist, suddenly I am challenged by Jesus. And he tells me, not in so many words, but you know, I can hear it, that I will receive his graces only to the extent that I repent of judging others, wanting things to be to my tastes, and putting myself separate from other people. Um, and he, what's more, Jesus in the Eucharist makes me realize that, um, that, the, um, that, the, that that time when I'm with him in, in, the, in the Eucharist is the time to pray for all those people who are united to me in, were with me um, in, through, through baptism and 
all these people who are united to me in and through the Eucharist, pray for those who are persecuted for their faith, who don't even have a priest to come and regularly say mass for them, and to um, and, and I I just realized that that um, I can't be really lonely anymore. I can't be lonely through self-imposed isolation, and I can't feel lonely even if I'm trying to connect with people and it's not working. I can't feel lonely because I have Jesus, and when I have Jesus, I have everyone else with him. You know, like James Joyce said about the Catholic Church, here comes everybody. And, and that this is where God wants to perfect me. He wants to perfect me in this big net with everyone else whom he intends to, to take with me to, to heaven. And, and then, you know, the title of this book is Sunday Will Never Be the Same. And, and as I mentioned, it's the title of a pop song. It's also um, relevant because uh, I, my Sundays will never be the same as they were when I was a, before I knew the Lord because Sundays used to be the day to sleep in after going out Saturday night. But, but moreover, my Sunday will never be the same now because Sunday, I am never the same. I bring myself where I am at the moment that Sunday and and as I am really present for Jesus, he is really present for, for me. And even though Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, every time I meet him, he has different people with him and different things that they need praying for. So, so you know, that's what really makes Sunday exciting. That's what really makes every Sunday different. And, and thank Thank God for that. Thank God that our Sundays never will be the same. So you've been a wonderfully attent attentive audience, and, and, uh, I, I, and I'm really looking forward to answering any questions that you have and hopefully meeting uh, each of you uh, afterwards. Thank you so much, and God, God bless you. So if there are